be in the book of Acts. We're going to be in kind of a lot of places in Acts today, um, doing something a little bit unusual. Good to be back. Um, I was happened to be with Brent. We were down in Texas at Baylor Seminary and did a um, like a summer class with uh, on the book of Galatians, which was really powerful, and I enjoyed that a lot. And then was able to to sneak away for just a few days and join Pat in Indiana with with her family. So really good to be back. Um, Jordan and David heard good things, and I, I listened to you yesterday, and so appreciate you filling in. Happened to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is the topic this morning. And when he came up with that, that was over a month ago, I think, when we were talking. And I already knew I was going to speak on the Holy Spirit this day, and then found out Jason Hubner is going to do an institute on the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure when is that. Is that in, a, in July at some point? So uh, the Spirit must be up to something. I'm not sure what. Um, Pat and I, when we got married and we moved, we moved to West Virginia, not, we didn't move, we moved to Virginia so I could go to seminary and we had to haul stuff that we had. Um, it wasn't a lot, but we got a little trailer that we borrowed from somebody and we attached it, stuck it on the back of the Buick that I had, which is a K car. Do you guys remember K cars from the late seventies? Uh, K cars were famous for breaking down and it had a four-cylinder engine, not very strong, and so we were driving across the country moving that, and we stopped in West Virginia to get some gas, and we were just hitting the Appalachians, and how many of you have been through the Appalachians in West Virginia? I mean, it's really beautiful. It's not the Rockies, but there's a, part, there's a place in West Virginia. Those are pretty big mountains, and they're really beautiful, and so we stopped to get gas in a town that was down in a valley, and it was right on the edge of the Appalachians, and as soon as we came out to get on the highway, we had to do one of those circle, you know, a circle thing to get on, and immediately, we were going up a really high incline. And with that, pulling a trailer, with that Buick, which is four cylinders, we had the hardest time getting going up the mountain. And I mean, I felt like we were crawling the whole way. Have you ever been crawling in a vehicle, pulling something, going slow, that you're even, you're like doing this as if that helps, right? But I'm doing that like the whole way, like, come on, baby, let's go, let's go. And it never reached speed all the way till the top. Um, but I'm wondering, have you ever experienced that kind of thing in your life to where you felt like you just were out of power, didn't have the power to do the things that you were encountering? Have you ever felt that way in your life? I think probably all of us have, and that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. And specifically, I do want to talk about the Holy Spirit. He's called the forgotten member of the Trinity. I talked to somebody this week in my triad, and he said that in the church where he grew up, the Holy Spirit was constrained to a symbol on a stained glass window. That's the only place they ever saw or thought about the Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is a very humbling topic for me because Jesus says the Holy Spirit's the wind and the wind blows where he wills. How do you talk about and try to, to talk about the Holy Spirit in a way that you're doing justice to him? So, um, trust me, I come at this very humbly. Here's what I want to do. Um, um, I'm going to really have to wing this. Is that okay? But I think I'm ready to wing it. I want to look at four stories in Acts where the Spirit comes upon four different groups of people. It's the only place where he comes on four groups. And these stories have generated a lot of confusion, especially since the Second Great Awakening and even the turn of last century. There's been a lot of teachings about the Holy Spirit that have kind of come out of that. And I want to look at each of those four stories, and I want to ask what's going on with them. Why are they there? What are we supposed to learn? So turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you would. 
It's the story of Pentecost um, when they first received the Spirit. And in chapter 2 at verse 1, here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. <clears throat> Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind <coughs> excuse me, came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one, of, each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own language, in our own native language? So that's the coming of a Spirit on those the 120, the original apostles, the original 120 followers of Jesus in Acts 2. Now flip over to Acts 8. I want to show you the next group that receives the Spirit as a group. It's in Acts chapter 8, um, and we're going to look at verse 4. I'm going to read part of, um, part of this and skip down to another part of the verse. But in Acts chapter 8, I want to start in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowd heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Now jump down to verse 12. When they believed, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news, so they, they become converted, okay? When they believed the, that... Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon, who I just skipped his part, but he was a, a magician in that area. Simon, that magician, he himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles. And then jump down to verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they, as a group, they received the Spirit. Okay, one more, chapter 10. Go over a couple of chapters. There's one more group. There's actually four. I'm gonna hit three at first and come to another one in a minute. There's four groups, four times that this happens. So chapter 10, it's the whole story of Cornelius, who's a Roman, who fears God and is a God worship, we're told, and how he's praying to God, and then God appears to Peter in a dream and has Peter sent to him to proclaim the good news. And in Acts chapter 10, if you go to verse 33, verse 33, this is Cornelius speaking to Peter when he arrives. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he, accept, he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Jump down to verse uh, 43, if you don't mind. Verse 43. He Peter continues talking to them and sharing, and then in verse 43, all the prophets testify about him, about Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so in these um, first stories, in Acts 2 and in Acts 8 and in Acts um, 10, we see three different groups who, as a group, receive the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people have asked the question, and maybe you do, I don't know if you do, I have, like, what's going on with, what's, what's the point of all of this? Why are whole groups receiving the Holy Spirit? And what I really want to show you with these three things, and especially with one that's coming also, I mean, other than the second one, that these are stories of whole groups of people hearing the gospel and receiving the gospel. So these are stories of conversion and of the Holy Spirit coming on people who've just been converted, okay? About the Holy Spirit who comes on people who've just been converted. We're told all through the New Testament in Ephesians 1, 13, we're told in Galatians 2 and 1 Corinthians 12, 12, that whenever a person believes in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed with him, that he comes upon us, and that we have him completely at that time of our conversion, that we have complete access to the Spirit. He's at work in our lives, and he empowers us for all the things that we need to do. And that's what's happening in these stories, is that these are people who, who received Jesus, except for that first one. And that first one, that's the apostles who Jesus had promised in Luke 24 that he would send the Spirit. He said, you're going to proclaim the gospel to all nations, but first go wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the Spirit. He told them in Acts 1, 3 to 5, I'm going to clothe you with the Spirit, stay in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 1, 8, he says, the Spirit will come on you and will give you power. And then you'll take the good news in Jerusalem, beginning in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to all the part, other most parts of the world, right? So that first one is kind of unique. That's the beginning of the church. That's him giving his followers his spirit. But Acts 8 and Acts 10 are stories of people receiving the spirit at conversion. Now, why is that all so significant? And here's why I want to say that's significant is that... Really, I think Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I mean, if you look at this, I'm going to come to Acts 1, 8 in a minute, but if you look at that, the people, the groups that are receiving the Spirit are the Jews in Acts 2, it's the Samaritans in Acts 8, and it's Gentiles, specifically Romans in Acts 10, who were receiving the Spirit, who were receiving the Spirit. So why would that be so significant? I think it's so significant because Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is the key verse, it's the theme of the whole book of Acts. As you can see below, the book of Acts is structured by the, that one, chapter 1, verse 8. And in that verse, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what I want you to see that I think is going on with these groups receiving the Holy Spirit is that what God is doing is he is demonstrating the thing he said all along in the Old Testament, that all nations would come to know him, that he would send his spirit on all people. And what was said through Jesus in Matthew 28, in Mark 16, in Luke 24, in Acts chapter 1, that he was sending them to all nations. And that by the spirit coming on these three groups, what God is showing is the thing he said that would happen would happen. Because they come on these groups in a way that apostles are present at every one of them. So Peter and John are present seeing this happen with the Samaritans. Peter's there when it happens with Quirinius and his family. So the apostles are bearing witness to the Spirit coming in a very manifest, evident way upon groups 
that represent the, the people he talks about in one, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Um, if I go back to this, tongues happen in two of them, but they don't happen with the Samaritans. We don't know what happened. There was some way that it was manifest outwardly. So this isn't teaching that if somebody, the tongues is for everybody, or if you come to Jesus or you become saved, the tongues is necessary. That's, that's not the point. Um, the whole point really is that God is reaching all nations, and he wanted to show the early church the reality of that. And that's really significant because if you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see there was a lot of debate among the Jewish believers as are, is, are those other people really part of the people of God? Can they really get saved? I, we even read this week that they were sharing exclusively only to Jewish people. We're going to see when they end up going to Antioch that even when they went to Antioch because of persecution, they only shared with Jewish people. They were not convinced that Jesus was serious about taking his gospel to all nations. And they weren't convinced that the Samaritans or Gentiles could truly become the people of God and be saved. And so in these, these three groups, what God is doing is showing them, confirming the reality of this. Let me hit, um, let me hit some scripture to show you this. So in Acts chapter 10... This is in the story of Cornelius. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. They were astonished. They were surprised that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Spirit just as we have. So do you see it's kind of like a shock to them. Like, are you serious? Gentiles as a group are receiving the Spirit. And then if we look in Acts chapter 11, um, when Peter goes home to Jerusalem, here's what happens. So the apostles and believers throughout Judea, they heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, they criticized him and said, you went to the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? So starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. And here's part of what he said. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So they're like, okay, it's pretty obvious, even Gentiles. And then in Acts chapter 15, the church has a big debate, and what they're saying is, we're going to make non-Jewish people get circumcised. And Peter and Paul show up, and they're like, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to read through this whole discussion they have, except in verse, I think that's verse 6. Some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up, and they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and, circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart. God, who knows the heart, showed, uh, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So do you see how this was a confirming thing to them, that the Spirit didn't just come on them at Pentecost, but came on Samaritans and then came on Roman Gentiles, that it was confirming to them that God was saving all people and that all people could belong to the family of God. There's one more uh, 
story I want to show you. Go to to Acts chapter 19. One more story I want to show you. And in Acts chapter 19, we read this in verse 1. Because there's one more group that as a group received the Holy Spirit. Acts 9, 1 to 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and he arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them as a group, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. Um, So, again, the question is, is what's going on in this one? If he has shown that his spirit will come on Jews, on Gentiles, on Samaritans, This one is a very unique one because you have a group of people who were up in Israel who followed John the Baptist. They had heard the Messiah was coming. They hadn't even heard John talk about the Holy Spirit. For some reason, they had left there and had gone to another, to probably into Turkey. I think this is where this is. Paul ends up coming, tells them that Jesus has come, the Messiah, tells them about Jesus. They believe in him, and then they receive the Spirit as a group. And this one I don't think was so much confirmatory to the early church. I think those as his disciples, since they just heard about Jesus and he would baptize you in the spirit, it was important for them to experience that. So when we're looking at these four texts of the spirit coming upon groups, um, it's not trying to teach us, I don't think that we need a second a baptism, a second, there's a, there's a thing called the second, now I've forgotten, a second blessing, or we need to speak in tongues. That's not the point. In the book of Acts, the reason the Spirit's coming on these groups is it's confirmatory or giving evidence to the fact that God is at work at all people. But to me, okay, so I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense as what's going on with the Spirit coming in the groups? Okay, that's not the main point of Acts. That's not the main point of Acts, and I just need to get down to, to the nitty-gritty of this. So that's what Luke is doing, is he's demonstrating that God's good news is for all people. But if you've been reading Acts with us, the Holy Spirit's on every page, isn't he? On every page. And so we have these four stories of, of the Spirit coming on groups, but what we see, and Melissa referenced it, is in Acts 4, in Acts 13, I could show you multiple places that it talks about that the Spirit, I would show them to you, but we're short on time. How the Spirit came, it would say the Spirit filled Paul and he spoke with boldness. Or he filled Peter and John and they spoke with boldness. That it talks about, they already possessed the Spirit, but it talks about them being filled with the Spirit. And then when they're filled with the Spirit, they're empowered to do the thing that he's called them to do at that moment. And so, for me, these four group things, this doesn't talk to me about how we should be doing church or anything about the Spirit in the church, because those were unique occurrences that the early church needed to see. But the thing I don't want to miss is those individuals who knew Jesus, they were filled with the Spirit upon conversion, but we're told that they continued to be filled. And this actually fits what... Paul says in in Ephesians 5.18, because in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. A command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, It's a passive verb. It doesn't 
say I, I can do anything to get the Spirit. It's just be filled with the Spirit. I have to have a heart that's open for Him. There's no technique to have to be filled with Him. Um, it's, it's nothing. I just come with a heart that's open with hands like the Spirit of God. I want a greater empowerment of you in my life. And it's, it's a present tense command, which means it's an ongoing activity. He's calling us to be ongoingly filled with the Spirit. And I don't totally understand what that means, but somebody has likened it to a balloon. So when I became a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came inside of me, and I have him forever. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. I am filled with the Spirit. This balloon is filled with air, right? Is it not filled with air? But Paul says, continue to be filled with the Spirit, ongoing, meaning that though, though, though I'm filled with the Spirit now, that I'm expandable in some sense, and the Holy Spirit's infinite, and there is a sense that He can give me, though I have Him, He can fill me more. He can come more into my life at times of need, enablement, to do the things that I have to do, and that I'm commanded to go on being filled with Him. This is what should be happening in my Christian life. The scripture says, I can grieve the spirit. I can do things that lessen his influence. That I can not just grieve the spirit, I can quench the spirit. By not walking with him, not being obedient, I can lessen his influence. I always have the spirit, but I can grieve him. But what the goal of the Christian life is, is that in five years, I ought to be able to look back and say, I have more and more of the influence of the spirit of my life than I did five years ago. And in ten years that I can say, I have more of the influence of the Spirit in my life than I did 10 years ago. And in 20 years, I can say, I have more of the influence of the Spirit in my life than I did 20 years ago. It's up and down. There's days I'm quenching Him. There's days I'm in the Word. But this need, here's, here's, here's really what I want to communicate. Uh, we desperately need the Spirit. Do you know that? Okay. The Spirit comes upon them. These groups receive the Spirit as a confirmation that God is reaching all nations. But the point of Acts, the point of Acts is daily, I desperately need His Spirit in my life. I need Him in everything I do. We need Him as a church. And I've just... I'm having this growing sense in... my life, the need of the Spirit. This growing sense that if I just do everything on my own or in my own power, which is so easy for me to do, that I'm not going to have the empowerment that He wants to give in the things I do. And I have a growing sense that we as a body, that we desperately need the Spirit at work among us, collectively in everything we do. And so to me, that's really what the book of Acts is about. I wanted to kind of answer a question a lot of people have about those four outpourings of the Spirit on groups, what I think is going on. That was for that time, and it was important. But don't miss the point as you read the book of Acts that we desperately need the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, I'm so hungry for him right now. Wanting more. Wanting to submit, to surrender. Just saying, I, I need you so desperately to transform me, to make me more like you, and to help me do the things that you've called me to do. And so I just really would love us as a church to just, as we read Acts, to have that personal posture before the spirit of needing him and des desperately wanting him.
Can I read a few quotes? This whole thing did not go as planned. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Corey Ten Boom said, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength. It's the most confusing, exhausting, tedious of all work. It's like driving a four-cylinder Buick up the Appalachians, pulling a trailer in West Virginia. That's what it's like. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary in China, says, We give too much attention to method, machinery, and resources, and too little to the source of power, the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer, who to me is a modern-day prophet, frequently I read him, it's like, ouch. He says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 90% of what, 5% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. Isn't that powerful? And we just read in our New Testament from Lloyd Ogilvie a story, what, a week, two weeks ago? I don't remember. Where he said this, one day while I was sailing, the wind went down and the sea became calm and flat. There was nothing to do but sit in irons and wait for the wind. Irons is a selling term for a windless time of drifting. While waiting for the wind, I drifted past another sailboat that was floating aimlessly. The people on board the craft waved and made a flat uh, of the hand gesture of complaint about the lack of wind. One man stood by the sail and he blew on them. I thought about that for a long time afterward. How, like many Christians in far too many churches, human breath blowing on sails, no wonder we make so little progress. The Spirit of God in Hebrew is ruach, meaning breath and wind. At Pentecost, that power of the Holy Spirit was like a mighty wind. The Spirit filled the disciples and got them moving again. What we need is a mighty wind, a fresh bracing wind of a new Pentecost. So stop blowing your own breath into the sails of your life or your church. Ask for a fresh wind to fill the sails. Without the Holy Spirit, we'll drift in irons and we'll be lost at sea. I don't know. Do you feel the need for more power in your life? Do you feel the need for a helper to come alongside you and give you the ability to do the things that he's called us to do? Twelfth, um, let us be people that are seeking the Lord's, the Spirit's influence and power in our lives yielding more of our lives to him, seeking his, giving him more access, longing for his grace, for his power, for his transforming work in our lives. Because in the words of Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by might nor power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. So I just want to call us. Uh, the Lord's been calling me to this, a greater dependence on him. And as I'm reading Acts, I mean, the spirit's just jumping off the page everywhere, right? And I'm like, Lord, I, I want your spirit the way they had it. That's what I want in increasing mounts. Would you please be at work? So we want to end with a time of worship. Could you stand? And I want to pray. So, Father, my, my heart's desire just every day I'm hungering for more of you. I'm hungering for more of your spirit. I'm just longing. Um, I just want to be a part of a movement of you. And that only happens with your spirit. So just make us a people, um, a church, a body of people that we want to be a part of a movement of you. And that, that means we have to have your spirit at work. And so just we just come humbly and we, we, want, we want to be filled by you more and more. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Darren's not joking when he said it's humbling to teach on the Holy Spirit. It's humbling to lead worship when we're focusing on the Holy Spirit, which is a short thing. Normally, I'm really good with names, <laughs> and the Lord is so good to humble me today at the beginning of the morning. Um, some of our sweet men who keep us safe and security, and they're always here greeting, and they're walking around. Sam walked by, and I was like, hey, Mark. And he's like, hey, Mark. And then, you don't know this, Sam, then Mark walked in, and I was like, hey, Seth, I mean, Mark. <laughs> and then Charlie was over there, and I almost called him Sam. And it, God was just like, you know, I'm fully able to keep you where you need to be. <laughs> And so when we get out of line, he is able to humble us. But anyway, um, to start this song, Consuming Fire, um, what I want to encourage you to do at home and here is take an authentic posture in your heart, physically, mentally, however is where your heart is at, that honest thing. It's part of worshiping in spirit and truth that Jesus said is going to happen, and that's what we want to do. So whether that's extending your hands, yes, I want more of you, Holy Spirit. Maybe it's sitting down because you're needing humbled like me. Uh, maybe it's standing up. Uh, maybe it's raising your hands. Whatever is your honest heart this morning, I want to encourage you to do. Don't be worrying about what other people do. Oh, they're raising my hand. Maybe I should raise my hand. We can't worry about everybody else um, when it comes to um, our hearts with the Lord, okay? ask for your more. Fill us again with your Holy Spirit.
sing that one more time. Church has been singing this for 1935, that song was written. Almost a hundred years. We can keep asking for more.
That's our prayer this morning, God. We're so grateful for your presence with us. We're so grateful that you allow us to be aware of your nearness. You're near to the brokenhearted, and you save those who are crushed in spirit. We just want you to get the glory and your will to be done here in 12th Avenue and Emporia and beyond as it is in heaven. We pray and sing and do our life all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, the man who shared, I forget his name, Dave Manor, send you out with this quote. He said, the only way our church can impact culture is if it's obvious we have been with Jesus. So you are sent to be with Jesus and shine for the people around you.